Our reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking at the second half of Noah's Ark story, and this is the the story of when God gives promises to Noah and to his people after him. We have to remember some of the story that we've looked at this summer, which is we sat in Genesis 1 and 2 as God creates the world and humanity in perfection, but then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin and are expelled from the garden. In Genesis 4, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, kills his brother Abel. And from then, violence and sin continues to increase across the earth to the point where we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and God gives his summary of all of humanity this way. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, of humanity, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God grieved the sinfulness of humanity, it says. And so God calls Noah. He calls Noah to build an ark. He says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood to wipe out all of the living creatures because of the sinfulness of humanity. So build an ark that you and your families can get into and be safe and bring all of the creatures, two of every creature, so that they will continue after the flood. Noah does this. He follows and obeys God's command. And the flood waters come, and Noah is in the ark with his family and the animals, and they're there for months as the flood waters are raging and destroying, and then eventually they land on dry ground. And when the earth is dry and God calls them forth, they come out, and Noah's first thing that he does is he worships God. Noah worships God. And God's response to Noah is to declare what he was going to do all along, which is his promise to humanity. And we get this in a covenant that God is establishing. And it's these words in verse 9, 10, and 11. I'm going to read them again, even though Caroline just read them for us. Behold, God says, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
God, through Noah as kind of the new Adam, is establishing his covenant with humanity. He's reestablishing his covenant with humanity, the one that he began in Genesis 1 and 2 when he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. I give you the creation and I give you to one another. That's the covenant God establishes with humanity originally. He's doing it again here. And little brief history lesson, um, some of people find this really interesting, but really you need to know it to understand what we're doing later today, but also what God is doing with Noah. It's called a covenant. In the ancient Near East, the way that law was done was through covenants. It was the bringing together of two parties with legal binding agreements, usually with death involved if you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain. The way that it worked was this, and and we found this about 100 plus years ago, archaeological digs were finding all of these ancient treaties all across the Near East. Hittite ancient treaties, suzerain vassal treaties, all these things that were amazing troves of understanding not only the world a thousand, two thousand years before Christ, but also the biblical world. And what they found is this, ancient Near Eastern covenants have a few things in common. One, it involves two parties, like two clans or two kingdoms, two nations, coming together in agreement. And in their coming together in agreement, they make promises to each other and also have obligations. Like, hey, I'll come to your defense if you come to my defense if the Egyptians attack us. That was a covenant. They also had blessings and curses. If you don't do your end of the bargain, may these horrible things happen to you. But if you fulfill your end of the bargain, here's the blessings. And then they always ratified the covenant in a ceremony, much like a wedding ceremony is a ratifying of a covenant between two parties. And then they always had a sign, a symbol that was held or received or given in order for them to remember the covenant that they had made with the other party. The ancient Near Eastern covenant studies say there are three types of covenants they had 2,000 years before Christ, 1,000 years before Christ. The one was what's called a parity covenant. It's between two parties of equals. Usually that was like two clans that were coming together saying, hey, we'll have our sons marry your daughters. You have your sons marry your daughters. We'll be in community with one another. So a parity covenant. The second was basically like a king and a subject. And it was usually when one kingdom conquered another kingdom. So my kingdom would conquer your kingdom. And I would say, hey, I will let the rest of you live as long as you are my slaves and you give me half of everything that your fields produce. And I will protect you from the Egyptians. It's a great deal. So you conquer, you set up the obligations. If you don't do what I say, I will kill all of you. The third type of covenant was called a royal land grant or a royal grant. It was basically like a benevolent uh, king who was giving grants to people, usually to keep their loyalty or because they were loyal. And so they would say, hey, I'm going to give to the heads of these clans lands here and here, and that will kind of ensure their loyalty. But it was really a, it was supposed to be a no-strings-attached gift. Most biblical scholars say the covenant with Noah and his followers was this third type of covenant, a royal gift a gift from a king who benevolently gives it to his loyal subjects or subjects, usually leaders. But the difference in the Noah covenant is the subjects aren't loyal. Noah was. But the gift, the promise that God gives in this covenant is not just to Noah. It's to all humanity, all creation. And if you read even to the second half of the book of Genesis Genesis chapter 9, the good Noah and his sons, all of a sudden sin enters in again. 
And by chapter 11, they have completely abandoned God at the Tower of Babel once more. It doesn't take long. And the whole rest of the story of the Old Testament and New is that of humanity again and again, continuously doing evil, turning from God again and again. So God grants this gift not because of human loyalty. It's a different kind of thing altogether. On top of that, God gives a sign. And if he was going to give a sign in like a... um, in one of these ones where it's like the king giving to his subjects a sign, he would give the sign to, I would give the sign to you to remind you that if you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you. But that's not why God gives, what's the sign that God gives? There's a sign that he gives, right? It's the rainbow. I give this sign. But why does God give the sign? We think of it as to remind us. We see the rainbow and it's like, oh, it's beautiful. God's never going to destroy the earth with a flood, but it's not for us. It's not what it says. We didn't read this part. But in verse 14 and 15, we read this. God repeating the sign of the covenant that he makes with humanity. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, this is verse 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 9. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. In other words, it's not for us. It's for God to remember. We may deserve wrath and justice, but God sees his sign and says, I will constrain it. I will extend mercy, generosity, and love to a people who do not deserve it. The whole covenant with Noah and all humanity is God saying, I love you. I'm committed to you. This is my promise to you. Will you accept my gift, my grant? And if you were a person in that ancient world, you would say, who is this God? This God doesn't act like our gods. He doesn't act like our kings. He doesn't act like us. The God of Genesis 9 is a God of restoration. He's restoring things that need to be undone and destroyed. Genesis 9 is a recreation account. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the heavens and the earth and sends forth humanity. Genesis 9 is a recreation. A lot of the wording and the language is that of a recreation of the, of the, of the, of the world and of humanity. And it's God saying, I am committed to the creation and I am committed to you. What I began in Genesis 1 and 2, yes, I brought this flood, but I am committed to it to the very end. God's design is not to eliminate this creation It's to restore it and raise it to its elevated eternal purposes. And that's why the story of Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is that of a hope that God is going to renew this creation and make it as it was intended. Because God is committed to this creation. He's a God who restores things. We see this because he gives Noah the very same words that he gave Adam and Eve at the beginning. In verse 1 and verse 7 of our chapter, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as a bookend to this little statement to emphasize it, he says, you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. He's doing the same thing he did in Genesis 1 and 2, now to Noah and therefore to all of us once again. He's once again gifting us as humanity to creation. The creation is yours. Enjoy it. I give you life. Enjoy it. Be fruitful and multiply. Flourish. I want you to flourish in this creation. It is my gift to you. 
But not only that, he's also calling them and giving them community. You know, if Noah was about the only faithful person around, he could have just been like, hey, Noah, I got a plan here. Why don't you live out your days? Maybe your sons, the end. The animals seem to be better. Why does he say, be fruitful, make more evil people? He's calling us not just to see the good of creation and his intention, but to see our need for one another. We're not called to be isolated in our ark. We're called into community. We live in a world that is constantly in isolation. We make decisions in isolation, make decisions on where to live, not based on going to community, but maybe sometimes to escape community. God calls us into community because that's where he shapes and molds us and speaks to us. He loves people, and he wants you to know him through people. We're called into relationship with one another, and we see this in these very words, be fruitful and multiply. It is good that there would be more, more people. You're called into community because God is not only a God of restoration, he's a God of relationship. God's promises, his covenant promises to Noah are not just to Noah, it's to all humanity. God values humanity. He values them enough that the reason not to murder in in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, it's not just like, hey, if we murder people, then we're all going to be gone. That's bad. It's not pragmatic. The reason why murder is wrong is because I made you in my image. When you speak evil against, when you strike, when you kill a human, you're offending and hurting and striking God. We are made in his image uniquely. God is identifying with us powerfully and saying, I am committed to you and your life. You are made in my image and I value you infinitely. God is a God of restoration. He's a God of relationship and we see it in Genesis chapter nine. But of course, we should go back to this. Sin is still an issue. Sin is still an issue. Post-flood, the sin, sin still exists. And we keep rejecting God. It's our natural angle. And think about how you sin. So let's just talk about it for a little bit. It's a fun little one to talk about. But the the root and effect of sin in our lives. Sin, on one level, breaks relationship with God. That's the first and main thing that it does. Think about how sin works in your life. So let's take one particular obvious external sinful sort of thing. Most people would say anger, having anger issues is, is a bad thing. You can fill in the blank for your own issues. Because I know not all of you, just about half of you have anger issues. So for the other half of you, just pretend like it's your thing. But the question is this, not how do I have more self-control so I don't lose my temper? Or I need to learn to control my tongue so I don't say mean things to my wife. The question is why do you lose your temper? Why do you say horrible things? Probably in that moment, in that moment it's because you're not being respected. You deserve respect. He's not respecting you. Or you're not getting your way. You told your kids what to do, right? And in part, it's because you're finding your identity in how they treat you, which means you're not finding your identity in God, which means you're not trusting God, which means you're rejecting God to provide your identity for you, your value for you. In that moment, you're actually not being driven as much by anger as by fear. Fear of losing your standing. 
Fear of losing how people perceive you. Fear of not getting your way. Fear of being out of control. Which means, again, you're not trusting God. To provide the way, to protect you, to value you. In that moment, it is lack of trust that God is good and he can take care of you. And he can give you the identity and value you need. So you lash out in anger. You've got to deal with a faith and heart issue. Sin always starts with breaking our relationship with God, and then it carries on to breaking relationship with family, friends. But sin is rejecting the God who is committed to us. Second thing sin does is it decreates us, the opposite of what God is doing in reestablishing his covenant with humanity. So creation, when God creates, he takes chaos and brings order. He brings that order, and you can see that in the Genesis 1 account especially, he brings order in order to create beauty and fruitfulness so that it would be a beauty and a flourishing and fruitful. And what he's doing is he's, he's bringing shalom into the picture. He's saying this is harmony and wholeness and well-being as it is meant to be. When the flood comes, it's not God striking the earth. The language that's used, if you read carefully, when the floodwaters come, it's God pulling back the constraints that held the waters at bay. The language is intentional for you and I to see that it is God who keeps things ordered. And when he pulls back his presence, all flood breaks loose. Chaos breaks loose. When God pulls back his constraints, death comes. Spiritual death, physical death. Flood is decreation. Our sin does the same. Sin is decreating ourselves our relationships, our world. It makes us less and less beautiful and fruitful, less and less reflecting the God in whose image we are made, living further and further apart from shalom, wholeness, well-being personally, spiritually, relationally. And in that sense, God's wrath is always just. God is just giving us over to what we want. When what we want naturally is freedom from God, God obliges. But the God of the Bible and the God of Genesis 9 is the God who protects, provides, prioritizes us. In this passage, we see in verse 3, God saying, I will provide for you. I give you everything for food, all the plants, all the animals. It's yours. I'm, I'm going to provide for you. There is enough. I will protect you. In verse 11, he says, I will never again cut off all flesh. I'm going to prioritize you because verse 5 and 6, I have made humanity in my image. All life, all human life has equal and infinite value in God's eyes. He protects, he provides, he prioritizes again and again in spite of our sinfulness. The God of the Bible is like the prophet Hosea who later on in the Old Testament is faithful, though he has an unfaithful wife. We are the unfaithful wife who break our marriage vows, looking for anybody else to satisfy us. But God does not. He lovingly takes us in again and again, even though we break our vows to him. The God of the Bible is like the prodigal father in the prodigal son story, the narrative that Jesus tells, the parable. We run away like that younger brother, and we run away as far from God as we can by nature. And he stands there waiting for us with open arms, ready to receive us at any moment. 
God so identifies with us that as we find out in the New Testament, He enters humanity to experience all of broken, sinful life for us and with us. And He so loves us that He takes the wrath for our sin on Himself in our place on the cross. That's the new covenant. The Noah covenant is pointing ahead to the new covenant with Jesus. The new covenant with Jesus is seen in these verses, Romans 6.23, John 3.16. Some of you guys memorized these from some flannel vacation Bible school flannel graph thing years ago. The new covenant, similar to the the Noah covenant, but, but far greater, is the wages of sin is death. You deserve death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is a royal grant, much better than land. And in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave a gift, a royal gift. He gave himself, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, a sacrament, in the way that we talk about in Anglicanism, is an outward and visible sign or physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. In the covenant with Noah, God promises to never again cut off humanity physically, all of humanity physically with a flood. And the sign that he gave is rainbow. But in the new covenant in Jesus, he gives two new signs. Three, but two ways we practice it. One is we're going to do it in just a few minutes. It's communion. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Eat the bread, drink the wine. Receive my gift of myself to you. And then afterwards, when we go to do baptisms, it's God declaring, be cleansed, be washed with water, and rise to new life in Christ. And the sign is the water. The gospel is the new covenant like the Noah covenant, but eternal and far greater, where God gives himself to us. He says, I am committed to you. I love you. I want you to be with me now and always. This is my solemn vow. And we, much like Noah, simply receive it by faith. As we enter the water to be washed in baptism, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, as we'll do in just a few minutes, we are receiving the gift of God again and again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, as we go to the baptism later, remind us that you are a God of covenant promises, of grants and gifts that we receive. In these signs, move and work by your grace and power in the lives of those who will be baptized. And in our lives, as we come once again by faith, recognizing our sinfulness, our tendency to run away from you, to break off fellowship, to decreate ourselves, and your loving faithfulness to restore us again and again and call us to the fullness and fruitfulness of life. Amen.